Hey everybody, welcome back to the Permission to Be podcast. This is part two of our conversation with Dr. Shanique Walker-Barnes. Um, so excited to bring this to you. If you have not listened to part one yet, highly recommend that you go back and listen to that so you're all caught up and can jump right in uh, and engage in the dialogue that the amazing dialogue that we were able to have. Additionally, um, one of the things that I wanted to chat with you about for a second was um, ways to show support to individuals who come on and give of their time and energy and resource. If you benefit from this podcast, I would encourage you to uh, go look up uh, someone that you learned from especially if they're an anti-racism educator, a person of color doing work in the world, helping people, um, and find ways to support them, especially in the time of COVID-19. So whether that be a Patreon account or promoting their material and their education on social media, uh, we can all begin to help each other and live more fully in community and be together. See you on the other side. Hello, and welcome to Permission to Be. I'm your host, Becca Epley, joined today by my good friend and co-host, Tommy Allgood. Permission to Be exists to be a space of hope for those journeying to find their true, authentic selves. We hope that the story shared here will inspire you on your own journey and help you unlock the permission to be who you have always truly been. As y'all were sort of in dialogue with each other, one of the weird places, not weird, but one of the things that sat with me as I think about this, um, and I feel like womanism is sort of giving me language through, is as a, a male presenting person, as a person raised male, so patriarchy is in me. In, in the age of Me Too, in, in this age of dismantling patriarchy on a social level and an internal level, um, knowing that also as, as Black men that we have also been deeply patriarchal in our history. Martin Luther King Jr. was a deeply patriarchal individual, did not give Black women the credit they deserved for the work that they were doing within the civil rights movement. Yep. I often struggle with the notion that white women have power over my body. I know it's a truth, but womanism being a, a space where we critically engage with the text and we critically engage with ideas. What does it look like for you in this space of reconciliation, in this space of uh, creating equity um, to acknowledge that tension? Yeah. And what actions should accompany that in your opinion. Yeah. You know, in a nutshell, this is when I say it's complicated, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> you amen, know? amen. It's, um, so um, even like the, the Me Too movement um, and womanists have always engaged the issue of sexual violence because sexual violence is so commonplace um, among Black women. It's the numbers are mm -hmm. um, over one in four um, are, are, are sexually, uh, have, have had acts of sexual violence committed against them. The numbers get even higher when you start adding in uh, other forms of, of violence. Um, so because of that, it's been a, a concern, um, a, a huge concern. And, and Black women are victims of sexual violence um, by men of all races, right? Um, white men and black men. So it wasn't ever as easy as just labeling, labeling um, white men as the enemy, right? It was, wait a minute, we also got to talk about the enemy within, sometimes the enemy in our own homes, um, the enemy in our churches when it's the pastor or the deacon, right? Um, and so holding that and recognize the high rate of sexual trauma of black girls and black women, and also recognizing the way in which black men's bodies are, are criminalized and hyper-criminalized in our society and are made mm -hmm. a threat um, when they pose no threat. It is us, us being the women who've been sexually assaulted or knowing women in our families who've been sexually assaulted 
and also knowing Black men who might have been falsely accused of sexually assaulting someone, um, there is no easy way to navigate that. And I think, honestly, we do it on a case-by-case basis. And sometimes, quite frankly, I mean, we can say this in light of the the presidential campaign, right? Um, Sometimes we end up having to align ourselves with a man whom we know has not always done right by Black women because we might think there are some, some, some bigger issues, right? Some other issues we can make headway on with that person, right? Um, we, we don't, Black women, we often don't have the luxury of having heroes who are all good or villains who are all bad. Mm. Um, we know the stories of too many civil rights leaders, um, pastors, community leaders, entrepreneurs that raped somebody in our family. Right. And they're heroes to everybody else. But we also know this other part of their legacy. And so it, it, it is so commonplace, much more than than you can imagine. The 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 story of I mean, even the Black Lives Matter movement founded by three black women. Right. There were so many stories only shared between women. Right. In the side conversations of the sexual assault and sexual abuse that was happening in some of those spaces, even. And then it's like, well, what do we do with this? How do we handle this? It is always complicated. And we are very often having to adjudicate between what seem to be opposing um, and competing um, agendas, right? Mm. Um, in, in this case, am I standing firm on, on women's rights, on women's rights to safety, on gender equality? Um, or am I going to just look the other way on that because this person can help advance us in so many other issues on class issues, on workers' rights, on civil rights, on voting rights, right? It's it's never, we don't often get the luxury of getting an easy decision, right? We, we, we often don't. We are often having to, to judge between two things that are not what we would choose for ourselves if we, if we had our choice. And so it is always a complicated space to be in, to hold those intersecting identities and to try to figure out how do we advocate not just for ourselves, but for all people. Um, And sometimes it means as black women, we might not get justice or even seek justice for something that happened to us individually. If we think the person who harmed us individually can help our people. Hmm. Right. Those are the types of choices that we often have to make. I think we see that playing out in the presidential race right now. We absolutely do. I really don't think black women are that excited about Biden. People keep using language of excitement. I'm like, I don't think that's it. It's a pragmatic choice. That's, I mean, that's ultimately it. I think black women, especially Southern black women voters, they made the decision of who do we think will work with us, right? And they Mm -hmm. saw more possibility in the Biden camp than in Bernie, even though Bernie... Bernie's ideas, they probably said, I really like what he's saying, but who do we think we can get to listen to us and talk to us and invite us in on this issue, right? Um, oh, you just you just articulate it and <laughs> yeah. put into, into language the thing that I did not understand that was yeah. happening as, mm-hmm. I, as I watched the conversations as... And I'm listening to the critique and I'm like, what don't you like about Bernie? And it, it was, what has he done for my people? Kind of like, I'm like, well, and, and my, I'm like, oh, he's done a lot, like blah, blah, blah. And it, but it, you tap into the key thing of how important it is to yeah. listen yeah, mm-hmm. and to make yeah. people feel seen and heard Yep, within that. Yeah. And I think that was. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it was the whole thing around Lyndon Johnson, right? Lyndon Johnson was no fan of civil rights. But at some mm. point, King, SCLC leaders, other people said, wait a minute, we, we have a doorway. We can work with him. But he absolutely mm. was not a big fan of black equality. Right. He kind of wanted them to go away. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they said, we can exploit that. Right. That's who we can work with. And so black voters have always made that decision. When I listen to um, my southern elderly black relatives, that's the conversation they're having. Right. We know him. We know we can work with him. We know he will let us in the door and we can get and we won't be able to get it on all the issues. But we think we can get some progress on some issues with this person, even though we may actually like the world that Bernie paints for us. That's the world we want. But pragmatically, <laughs> we're going to go with what we think we can make happen. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Damn. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In a nutshell, right? I think you're the first, is Dr. Shaniqua the first womanist pastor that we've had on? Ah. Yes. Oh, well, y'all got to change yes. that. Yes. You got to have more. <laughs> can you tell us, can you tell the audience about womanism? Yeah. So um, womanism, first of all, is a term that was um, developed by Alice Walker. And in the preface to her book, In Search of Our Mother's Garden, she provided this um, this definition of womanist. Um, and And it's a three-part definition that has many different things. But at the end, she kind of says, womanism is to feminism as purple is to lavender. Mm. Womanism comes out of frustration. (laughs) Um, It it, it comes out of Black women's frustrations that the women's movement didn't and wouldn't make room for the issues that Black women were raising. Mm. And neither did the civil rights movement fully, right? So when women were in the civil rights movement and said, well, we need to talk about issues of sexual abuse. We need to talk about these other issues. And black men said, don't, that's, you know, that'll, that'll divide the movement. We don't need to talk about that. We need to just focus on the issues that, that impact all of us. And by Mm. all of us, they really meant black men, right? Mm. Um, And likewise, when black women went to the feminist movement, even though they were involved in the formation of that movement. But when they said we need to talk about things like um, the way in which white women are getting their freedom by employing black women to do the domestic labor in their homes. Right. When they started talking about that, then white women said, oh, no, we need to we need to stay united as women and talk about the issues that impact all of us. And again, that was white women. Um, And so womanism emerged um, out of this sort of ethos of saying we are simultaneously black and female that can't be separated. Right. Um, When I when I experience the world, I experience it in my black womanness. I cannot usually depict. I can't usually say, did that happen to me because I'm black? Did it happen to me because I'm a woman? What did happen to me because I'm a black woman, right? It is very hard to tease those apart. Um, And so womanism is this way of trying to hold all of us. And and, and it comes out of this way of working that when when black women work for freedom, we don't just do it for ourselves because we are usually thinking about, because we are conditioned to be um, caregivers, we are usually thinking about all of us. We are thinking about the the brothers and the fathers and the sons, as well as the mothers and the daughters and the grandmothers and the aunts and the sisters, right? Mm. And so this way of saying, um, because Black women are at, at, at this intersection of oppressions, we have something to tell you about how oppression works, how privilege works, mm. right? We get to see these dynamics that Black men don't necessarily see on their own. that white women don't necessarily see on their own and that if we work to liberate black women we will end up liberating everybody Mm. right and so it is um it is a way of coming out of our centeredness and saying there's some there's some information we have right um yeah and so like you know i talk about and i bring the voices of, of my people i talk about it in terms of the christian reconciliation movement right that um, has for 20 plus years now talked about um, the need to form um, relationships between black and white people. And so many people see racism as, oh, we don't know each other, right? We we need to form relationships between people. Well, any Southern black woman I ask, they hear that and they start laughing. I've literally asked women in my family about that. And they're like, that's ridiculous because Southern black women were never separate from white people. 
We were literally raising black, I mean, white people's children, mm -hmm. taking care of elderly white people, black women now are the nursing home care yeah. care workers, yeah. right? Are overwhelmingly, yes. right? Black women are the nannies, black women. Like we've never had that separation. Um, and we've always known that it wasn't about separation. So it was like, if you had just listened to the women, we could have told you that wasn't the solution. That actually poses us to greater danger, right? Because mm -hmm. we're around white people more. Um, and so womanism really situates, it says we start from the experience of black women's lived experience. And we try to construct our understanding of the powers and the principalities from that stance. Um, and we and, and that's who we're trying to free. Again, thinking if we try to free black women, we will be freeing everyone. That's not to say that black women are kind of at the bottom of, again, the oppression ladder. Um, but again, that black women are likely to experience these opposing um, and sometimes, um, yeah, sometimes opposing um oppressions. Mm. Um, but it's also, we also recognize um, out of womanism, there have been other women of color feminisms that have also taken a similar stance, right? Um, and so that's, in a, in a nutshell, that's what womanism is. When I started reading about womanism, and I was like, well, this is feminism, but it's the most inclusive feminism that I've that I've read about, that I've seen. Um, yeah. mm. and, and so it, for me, it gave me language to then push back and go, no, no, it's, it truly is about liberation for all. Mm. Um, and what you're tapping into is generations of, of pain and having voices sat, mm. silenced um, within that. And so yeah. I think that is it, in that space, it is asking something of us to show up in a certain way. Yeah. Um, mm. You have a chapter called Reconciliation Begins with the Curse in uh, yeah. Womanist, a, revision, a Revisionist History. Wait, sorry, I messed it up. <laughs> I bring the voices of my people on Womanist Vision. <laughs> in that, you do something incredibly masterful, incredibly artful, and I was just like, whoa. You take... The color purple, Alice Walker's The Color Purple, um, and you sort of unpack that throughout that chapter to detail how reconciliation begins with the curse using yeah. Celie's curse um, that that when yeah. she said, "I curse you," um, and, um, I forgot the exact quote, but yeah. what does that even mean? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, okay, so I was um, spent about 10 years in these um, Christian communities that focus on racial reconciliation. And I would invariably, as you might expect as a womanist and primarily evangelical um, white spaces, get to this point like, why am I here? Right. Because the, the understandings of racism and reconciliation were always super simplistic. And whenever I would throw something out that would challenge people. I would get this resistance, right? And this always what we now call tone policing, right? Mm, yes. There was always, always, you know, a conversation about how I was saying what I was saying. Um, yeah, the the and and so much resistance in these spaces that we're talking about race. So these weren't even the colorblind spaces. These were the spaces that acknowledged racism existed, right? But what I would get was that doesn't feel very reconciling, right? If I said things, I would like, oh, wait, so we can't talk about the issues that are happening mm. in our community. I can't challenge this. I can't tell you that what you're doing just centered whiteness. I can't, I can't say any of that. And so I realized- Can we make- Yeah, like, yeah. So- I find that point so interesting because we often say in conversation is not what you say, but how you say it. So yeah. like from a, from, from your perspective, from a psychology perspective, like how do you straddle that line of not tone policing, but also knowing that I guess certain conversations should happen in a certain way for people to receive them. I've always yeah. struggled with that, that, that yeah. sort of tension there. So I think I think our culture in some ways has hijacked therapeutic language mm. in ways that actually aren't helpful 
and that aren't therapeutic. Mm. Um, so my, mm. my, my form of um, training and my approach to doing therapy is I'm a systems, I'm a systems therapist, right? I, I work primarily with families. Um, that, that was my, my training, um, primarily families of color. And when I see a family, I'm seeing the dynamics between that family. I'm seeing the patterns in the family. Mm. I'm not so much looking at individual pathology. I'm saying, how does this system work together? This system isn't functioning for the people in it. Yeah. What I want to do is disrupt that system, right? That's my objective is to disrupt that system. And I know that systems are highly resistant to change. And so I've got to go at that destabilization, like whatever you do, they're going to try to restabilize themselves. And so I got to shake it up, right? I'm not going to shake up a system using nice, gentle language most of the time, mm. right? Most of the time <laughs> to shake up a system, you have to call it out. Like you have to say to a family, you notice whenever you do that, your mom does this and then you do that. Why y'all keep doing that? Yeah. <laughs> right? That's what you have to do. Right? You have to call out the system. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And then once they see it, they have the opportunity to decide whether they want to change it. Right. But you don't do that by just being really gentle and be like, yes, I see what you mean. Right. That's the that's the movie. That's the Hollywood version of therapy. The real <laughs> version of therapy doesn't work like that. <laughs> Not a good therapist. Right. Um, most good therapists don't do that. Um, even my therapist is high. She's very warm. She's but she will just straight call me on some stuff. Right. And so mm. um, and so what we have to do when we're talking about reconciliation, when we're talking about racism, we're talking about systems. We're not talking about individual relationships. We're talking about entire systems. And what I'm trying to do is not to make the relationship between this black person and this white person and this Latino person good, right? That's, that's a whole different issue. We're talking about the dynamics of an entire organization, um, of an entire community of people, right? Whether we're talking at the organizational level or the social level, right? And so then I'm not focusing on building relationship. That's not the goal. But so often Christian racial reconciliation thinks that's the goal, mm -hmm. right? And so it's, it's, it's just like, you know, with Black Lives Matter and the um, anti-Black police violence, there's so many white people in churches, when something would happen and I would be lamenting the next hashtag, right? The next mm -hmm. name, the next life that had been made a hashtag. I would get white Christians saying, oh, but I love you. Like literally had people saying, you know, I love you. And I'm like, what does that have to do with anything? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like you're loving me and feeling good about me does not protect me from a policeman's bullet. Yes. Right. And so it's again, what's our aim here? My aim is not to build relationship. My aim is to build justice. Mm. And so if I'm trying to build an equitable world, that doesn't come from me being like the white people whisperer. Right. Like me, like making <laughs> white people feel good about themselves. I actually don't think white people need to feel guilt about themselves when it comes to racism. Yeah. White people need a healthy dose of guilt and shame. Like oh, we are really, all racist, right? Yes, we right. are. We, we were born white. We it's in. Our, we were culturally. We were, that's what how we were brought up. Our yeah. culture has been based on colonialism. We are all racist. That yeah. can be a shame point. I mean, it should be a shame as far as our actions, but we have to acknowledge our whiteness. Yes, right. Acknowledge the whiteness. Acknowledge the sinfulness on which that was constructed. Right, mm -hmm. and so mm -hmm. and feel that. And yes. deal with that and feel that yes. discomfort to the to the point where you're like, oh, we need to change this right? Yes. where yes. you're willing to do something about it. And that mm -hmm. doesn't happen from ha happening with nice conversation. But that's always where these these conversations that were dominated by white people started and where they wanted to stay. Right. And so any behavior that typically it'd be a woman of color, um, usually a black woman. Right. Any behavior that de de de, um, departed from that nice Christian principle, right? Um, then people began to say, you're not working for reconciliation, mm. right? We don't like the tone of this conversation. Mm. And so what I began to see with Alice Walker's work 
um, which I really read as a story about reconciliation. And I'm talking about the novel, not the film. The novel ends in a very different way, right? And so it is a story of reconciliation, right? Mm. It is a story of harm and oppression and healing and reconciliation. And when I saw that, I saw that the pivotal moment that happened in that relationship between Celie and Mr. came in that scene where she cursed him where she stopped pretending, where she stopped protecting him. Because as an oppressed person, she was always protecting everybody around her because that was the way she stayed safe. Mm -hmm. If you make him happy, he won't hit you. If you make these people happy, they won't they won't demean you, right? You mm -hmm. make everybody else happy. But it was in that moment where she stopped trying to make him happy and she called him a low down dirty dog, right? And she cursed, mm -hmm. she literally said, I curse you. It was then he was forced to see himself because his whole world was designed so he wouldn't see himself. White people's whole world is designed so that they don't have to see themselves. Yes. Right. And so cursing, that language of cursing, calling out the truth, telling people the truth of who they are, which for white people, like calling pe white people white is like so like that is how much white people are conditioned to not see themselves. We can't even call them white. Mm. Right? It's <laughs> <laughs> I'm offended not really. I'm serious. I'm offended. You call me white? Why are you right. that We're all equal. Yes. Every single time. So, right, it's like the world is so constructed that to call white people white, right? We get into this with publishers because I capitalize white, right? And white people really don't like white capitalized. Like they don't want to be called white and please don't capitalize it because then it seems like a real thing. Well, it is a real thing. You constructed a whole society that were whole laws written to protect whiteness. So we got to call it out, right? And so even using that, it makes white people uncomfortable, mm -hmm. right? It requires them to face some things they don't want to face. I, I think we also here get into a bit of the black people are not a monolith um, yeah. because I was watching you use you, you said a few things in that and I was watching the next question uh, Austin Channing Brown's the next question with uh, Chi Chi and Brene was on this episode and you said that like white people need a healthy dose of shame and guilt and I was playing with the idea for uh, myself that like shame doesn't serve any purpose mm -hmm. but guilt because guilt is focused on behaviors as i understand it and please call, correct me call me on this um guilt is focused on behaviors like what I, I guess like is there for for people who are in 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 that that sphere of like oh i'm letting go of shame i'm letting go like is there a purpose of shame yeah i think there is mm -hmm. i so this is where I sort of push back against the Brene Brown, free mm -hmm. yourself from shame. Um, I actually think that's a pretty Eurocentric model, mm. right? This idea that shame is bad. Um, I think shame serves a purpose. Now, I think shame can be debilitating. But mm -hmm. I think when we're talking about identity and culture, we are not talking about one bad thing, right? We are talking about a whole culture, a whole worldview that has mm. been shaped in some sinful ways. I don't know how we deal with that without people being shamed by it and without shame being an appropriate response, right? Because it's not about... We, 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 again, we can't pinpoint this down to discrete behaviors. It's not a one-time thing, yeah. right? It is, and I don't see how guilt helps us and, and gets us to that point, right? I think shame can be, um, shame can be change-inducing, right? And so I, I question, and I, and I don't know that I've gotten all the way there yet, but I question this idea that shame is bad. Mm. Um, and I, I think shame can have a purpose. Mm. And I think in this case, because we are talking about not just something somebody did, but we're talking about who a people and who a country became. Yeah. 
we mm-hmm. are talking about your identity, oh, wow. right? Yeah. And yeah. that, that's shame. Mm-hmm. Like that's where we got to get to shame. Yeah. Mm. Wow. What if shame leads us to our bodies? And what if we learn to be more embodied? And part of being more embodied is recognizing what the white bodies have done and created in this world. Yeah. What if shame is that tool or stepping stone? I hate to say that because that feels such of a light word when I don't feel like this is a light sentiment. But that it brings us the shameful. So let's look in your body and let's look what your body has been a part of or what your your ancestral past yeah. has encompassed yeah you know so let's let's use that um yeah. and i can see that makes sense in my head the way you were saying that yeah so honoring like where is shame rooted ancestrally in your body mm-hmm. right that mm-hmm. kind of ancestral shame where where is that residing how are you embodying mm-hmm. that um what do we do with that right mm-hmm. and so i think instead of running from the shame and being like don't feel that Mm-hmm. It might be that, you know what, maybe that's an appropriate response Yeah. Um, that, yeah, maybe that's an appropriate response. And maybe what we need to figure out is how to honor that response instead of how to change it into something else. You know, but let's sit with that. Let's yes. feel that and let's figure out what that prompts us to do. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Mm. Yeah, it, it's so interesting because. Even though you did, what I'm picking up is even though there's a bit of difference in the explanation, the end result seems to be the same of sitting with it, um, doing the work, pushing through that. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Either way, you got to push through mm -hmm. it. Right. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. So am I, just to recap, when we say curse, um, when we speak about curse, are we speaking about like curse as in the sense of telling one's truth? Yes. To those who deny it. Yeah. Mm. So so I talk about it as in confrontational truth telling, mm. telling people the truth that they would rather not see, even though it's in plain sight. Right. Um, so that that becomes what we're what we're what we're doing. It's it is about telling people the truth about racism. It is talking about and exposing rather than hiding the ways we are hurt and harmed by racism, Mm -hmm. the ways we are hurt and harmed by sexism, right? It's about putting that out there. It's about calling a thing a thing, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and not letting people get get themselves off guard, right? It's putting people on the hook and Mm -hmm. being like, no, you helped create this, right? It didn't happen by itself. It wasn't a system that just came into being all by itself and replicated itself it was something that people acted in and still act in. And so it's calling calling that out in ways that are very uncomfortable. When uh when a person, when an organization um is structured in ways that center and benefit white people, right? Yeah. When it, it is white supremacist in its culture, and you have to say, I want to call this, you know, I want to call this out. It is very uncomfortable, right? And mm-hmm. so that 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 sense of um, yes, confronting the truth about what racism is and all the sinfulness and not letting people get away from that and thinking of themselves as, you know, completely good people when they are engaging in white supremacy. Mm. That makes so much sense. And so when I, I guess I hear in that speaking truth to power. Or yeah. yeah. And so and it's so just interesting that you use curse on that. But when we speak truth to power, it can't be unheard. It can't, it's yeah. out there. And so it's it is a weight on that person yeah. and they have yeah. to make a choice of what to do with it. And I just never, yeah. and, and so I didn't, I guess in my mind, I, I was thinking more in the traditional context of what curse meant. And I was like, yeah. I, I feel like I'm not, that I'm missing some of the richness of what she's yeah. actually saying. But like we curse people by telling our truth because it then becomes incumbent upon them for action uh, to, to repair or reconcile that. Yeah. 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 So Celie's curse specifically is until you do right by me, everything you do will fail. Mm. Right. That is a curse in the sense of proclaiming harm. But there's also an invitation, right? There is a, you have to do right by me. Mm. She's saying there's room for that still to happen. There's a possibility for change, 
I'm opening the door for you to step into change. I'm telling you, you have not been doing right by me, right? I'm bringing that to your attention so you can see you need to do something differently. Now it's on you, right? And that becomes the weight. So in the story, that is the weight that drives Mr. Albert into a deep depression. He has to confront who, he, who he's become. And it is heart-wrenching, right? Mm. Uh, he begins to feel like the whole house is moving in on him. He can't eat, he can't sleep, he can't do anything. And he finally realizes he's got to change. And so he starts making amends. He starts changing, not just in respect to her. So it's not just about undoing um, some wrong. He ends up having to change all of who he is in relation to everybody in his family and relation to society. So in his case, he has to un undo some patriarchy. He has mm -hmm. to learn who he really is and he has to take off the, the mask that patriarchy has told him that he has to wear as a black man in the South, right? And so he gets in, in touch with more of who he is and realizes who he is. He starts becoming more loving, not just to Celie, but everybody. And initially he does this, she's not around. She wants no part of him. He's not doing it for her sake. He's doing it for his own. He doesn't know if he'll ever see her again. Right. He's doing mm -hmm. it because it is the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. And by doing it, he makes his life better. He makes the lives of everyone around him better. Right. But he does his own work, independent mm -hmm. of her. Meanwhile, she's off doing her healing work, independent of him. She doesn't expect them to ever get back together, but she realizes she has to learn how to value herself in a way she's never learned how to value herself. She has to come into her own identity, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's the work. And then when they come back, they're not perfect people. They're still very much broken. She still doesn't trust them. Right? <laughs> She's yeah, like, I, I know who you are. I don't trust you. Yeah. But something happens and they end up being back in each other's space. And she starts to see this is a different person. And she's a different person. And then these two people who are different, but who have the same histories, they begin to say, okay, maybe we can craft a new relationship. Mm -hmm. The new relationship is not the old relationship. They're not gonna live together again as husband and wife. He asks her, she says, no, right? We're not doing what we did before. We're doing something new, right? It's not even just new for us, it's new for the world. The world has never seen a man and woman in that context be friends in that way, right? This is part of the work of reconciliation. Some people talk about it as we can't, we can't call it reconciliation because black people and white people have never been friends. Right, we're building something new. That's what reconciliation is. That's what the language of Corinthians says, right? Yeah. Um, behold, if anyone is in me, new creation. Right? Mm -hmm. That's what reconciliation is. It's about forming something new out of what was broken, not trying to get back to some state we were in before. We've never been there. Mm -hmm. We don't know what it'll look like, right? We will figure it out as we're doing it, but it requires some healing on the part of the oppressed and it requires some healing and repentance on the part mm -hmm. of the oppressor, right? And trying to build new relationship as we're doing that work of healing. Mm -hmm. Damn, damn, damn. <laughs> <laughs> oh. How you doing over there, Becca? I'm just receiving. <laughs> I mean, you don't you don't need my white voice to say anything. I mean, that's that was phenomenal. I mean, mm. Ooh. um, when you were talking about, you said something for it's some it's one of those things where you've heard something several times but until somebody says it just the right way and it clicks in your brain um about the church and reconciling racial relationships air quotes um that it's mm, that's that's been the focus i've never heard any other focus yeah i've never that's i mean and i'll be honest my journey is very very young um, into anti-racism. I wouldn't even say I'm just, I'm a learning and a listener. In the past, you know, five years, it's always reconciling relationships. Mm -hmm. There's never been, we need to step back from that and realize, well, in my personal opinion, I think we need to break down the systems and rebuild them. 
Yeah. And when I say we, I don't mean white people. And um, I would say I think that I think there's part in breaking down. Yeah. The oh, the breaking down. The, it's the rebuilding. But yeah, rebuilding, yeah. No, no, no. I, yeah. The breaking down. Definitely, yeah. white people need to get their rear in gear. The rebuilding is what I was specifically thinking of. And thank you for pointing that out. And it just makes me think that churches, especially evangelical churches, who are attempting any sort of anti-racism work, there's a large misconception that we need to turn the ship around. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. But what I have found with most of those places I've been in is what they really want um, Black people and other people of color to do is to act more like white people. Assimilate. Yeah, they really want assimilation. They just want it to be very, um, they want it to be like, you know, those old Benetton ads (laughs) where like all the people have different colors, but their facial features are pretty much the same. (laughs) (laughs) Their body bills are the same. Like they're, you know, their head texture is a little bit different maybe, but they're pretty much the same. Like that's what most of the time the church wants. Um, is A melting pot. Yes, right? Mm-hmm. In which everybody gets melted into a pot of whiteness, right? Mm-hmm. Um, everybody else loses their flavor, right? And so that's what we get. And so mm-hmm. as opposed to, do, because we want it to be nice. Yeah. Right? And it's not nice. It's hard. Yeah. Because... It's not just that sin happened. The major sins of racism happened. And we're, I mean, like we're, we're mostly doing this conversation, only talk about racism. We're not even, we haven't even really brought in too much of patriarchy and heterosexism and classism and ableism. And we're just limiting it to racism. I just just need you on every week because like, holy wow. I was like, I still, there's so many more, so much more to talk about. I know. It's hard just looking at that, right? And it's not just that it happened. The church sanctioned it. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Right. Like the church literally wrote church doctrine to support it, to aid and abet it. We changed our whole doctrine of baptism. Yes. And said baptism didn't affect who you were because we wanted to make sure that baptized Black people stayed slaves, right? I mean, the church is so guilty, right? So guilty Mm -hmm. that there is no way that we can undo that just through relationship. Mm -hmm. Like we have to do so much digging. Yeah, Um, It's so embedded into our society and into our structures that we have to do a ton of digging to figure out what it looks like. So we can't even get to the let's rebuild yet because we gotta we have to face the sin. Mm. We never want to face the sin. We just want to like hold hands and sing kumbaya. Like, but face what we did. The church needs to face what it did and the harm that is ongoing is not a thing in the past. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? The legacies are ongoing, right? And so we see it playing out right now. The um, increased risk of death for African-Americans from COVID-19. Yes. So much of that is because of intergenerational transmission of trauma and the way in which it impacts the body mm. such that African-Americans have higher rates of the, the conditions that put you at risk for severe complications from the disease, right? It's about lack of access to the medical system because of poverty, because of lack of access to healthcare. But more than that, it's also about how the medical system treats black bodies, including those that do have Mm. access and insurance and education, right? And so it, it is all of those things that this becomes the perfect storm. This is not a new thing. This is the consequence of historical sin that has been impacting black bodies in the here and now. Mm. Right. So that the traumas we bear in our bodies, all these these systems, right, the asthma, the higher rates of asthma. Well, because that was because of zoning laws. 
right? Mm. That building highways right through neighborhoods. Yes. I mean, none of this happened by mistake, right? Um, The higher rates of autoimmune disease because the body's stress response system has broken down over centuries of neglect, right? If you've got stress happening every day, a threat to your existence happening every day, your body, your white blood cells no longer know what to do. They no longer know what to attack. So they just attack the whole body, Mm. right? And so then you end up decades, generations after your enslaved grandmother having high rates of autoimmune disease, right? And then something like this comes along and it's easy to take out the folks who are the most marginalized, right? That, um, and, and we're seeing it with African-Americans. We're seeing the data. Yeah. I'm worried about the group we are not seeing, which is Native Americans who have a lot of the same mm-hmm. trauma patterns, right? Yes, yes. Um, and so I, that's the that's the group we're not talking about in the media, and that we're not seeing articles about. But I suspect it's the same thing happening. It is. I've mm. I've read s- several articles. Wow, it's why wow. it's wiping right. out reservations. Wow, and this is re-traumatizing for many Native Americans yeah. because when we came and colonized. You know, white Americans came and colonized this land and removed them. They also bought with them diseases, yep. <laughs> right? Yep. And so, and it, it that decimated populations. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's oh my gosh, you've given us so much to chew on, to ponder, to think about. Rich, in yes. Depth and oh. I want, I want to close on combining three questions sort of into one. At our space of worship, uh, we have this series called What's Saving You Right Now? And so one, how has your work molded you and transformed you? Two, what is salvation to you? Three, what's saving you right now? Okay, yeah, those are related. Giving myself permission to be, yeah, that's a good way to use it. Giving myself permission to be who God created me to be outside of the colonized way I was learned to, talk, to think about God and, 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 and self. And so, so for me, it has very much been what's saving me is trying to liberate myself, right? Um, trying to liberate myself from a Christianity that tells me that my African ancestors didn't know the divine. Um, trying to save myself from a model of black womanhood, a model of identity that tells me I have to put the needs of everybody else before myself. Um, trying to save myself from a white Christian world that tells me that I have to operate in a certain way, I have to look a certain way, I have to act a certain way um, to get ahead, to be taken seriously. And so what is saving me and liberating me is actually breaking myself down, um, which is a hard thing. Um, (laughs) It is a hard thing. I am constantly, constantly doing the work of self-reflection and questioning, and why did I do that? And oh, wait, was that white supremacy? <laughs> my, my internalized white supremacy in there? Oh, wait, did I just do the girl thing and not lean into my power in the way that it is constantly, constantly breaking myself down? And there is some stress in that, but there's also the freedom of just learning to be mm-hmm. and to say, you know what? I'm going to risk being my authentic self as I understand her right now. Um, I'm going to lean into that and I'm going to experience joy. Um, and, and so I think that in it is a nutshell is where do I hear God and, and who, how is God speaking to me today? Um, and what is it that people tell me I have to do to hear God? If that feels good, feels like I'm hearing God in that way, I'll do that. But if it doesn't, you know what? I'm not going to do that anymore. Um, and so it's, it's it's trying to break down all those yokes that have been placed upon me by patriarchy and white supremacy mm-hmm. um, and Christian supremacy, right? Um, and really just saying, who is God? How do I experience God? 
who do I think God has called me to be and what do I think God has called me to do in the world? Um, so yeah, that, and where do I hear God? And so a lot of that is hearing God through music. Mm. Um, it's through laughter and dancing and mm. just experiencing joy. Um, yeah, that's how I, I think that's the work that's saving me um, and liberating me. And I think it is the salvation. I think that's, I think at this point, my salvation is dependent upon breaking down the powers and principalities that intrude in my life on a day-to-day -day basis. Hmm. I just bask in that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I feel like that's not um, an adequate response, but thank you. And if you'll take a minute, and if someone wants to reach out to you or contact you or get more hold of your work, how would they do that? Best place to find me is on um, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Dr. Shaniqua, um, D-R-C-H-A-N-E-Q-U-A. And my website is drshaniqua.com. Um. If you have not purchased her books already, I implore you, not only are they written as academic books, but they're accessible, mm -hmm. deeply accessible, uh, deeply narrative, deeply rooted in storytelling, deeply rooted in the Africana tradition. And so my dear sister, I mm. thank you for the mm. blessing of basking in your presence for these last few hours. Mm -hmm. um, cool. And I look forward to to many more moments. Mm. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, both of you. This has been, uh, I mean, a truly delightful conversation. Mm. Um, so, yeah, thank you both. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Permission to Be. I'm your host, Becca Epley. And thank you to my good friend and co-host, Tommy Allgood. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and you'll never miss an episode. If you would leave us a rating and or review, we are always looking for more and more ways to hear from our listeners. You can find the links for today's guest in the show notes located at beccaepley.com.